have a lot of ground to cover today as we are in a series entitled uh, The Pentateuch, Where It All Began, looking at the first five books of the Bible and trying to take a high view of it in order that our hearts might trust the Lord, that we might learn how to see Jesus from the Old Testament, and that as we read the scriptures, we might see themes that run from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end of the Bible. And so that's why we're taking such a fast view. You could spend whole sermons on each end, whole sermon series on each individual book, and we have done that for Genesis and Exodus. But today we're just trying to take a high view so that we can do those things together. So I invite you to look at Exodus chapter 33 with me. I'm going to read there. And the aim of our time together is found in the title of the sermon. Father, I just want to be in your presence. I want to be with you. I do believe that's the message of the end of Exodus through Leviticus. I just want to be in your presence. So let me read Exodus 33, 13 through 23, and then I'll pray. Word of God says this. This is Moses speaking to the Lord on Mount Sinai when he alone was in God's presence of fire and cloud. Moses says, Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct? I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. Summary, what makes them special is his presence. Verse 17, and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name, which means you're mine. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you can't see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place where you shall stand on the rock and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. What we see there is not only the presence of God, but the holiness, the otherness of God. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. And we pray that you would stir us up in this moment to trust you with our lives. And that, Father, this 
moment of walking through your book, your story, that this moment would be a walking with you in your presence. I pray for the discouraged that they would know of your comforting presence. I do plead for those who have come in here really sad that they would know of your nearness and of your love. I pray for those who have come in indifferent or maybe even struggling to trust you that, Father, you would chisel away at the hardness. You would give them a soft heart that loves you above all. And I pray for all of us in the room Anyone who hears this message, that Father, you would cause our hearts to totally surrender. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Someone's presence is a comfort. You know what it's like when you're down, when you're struggling. And it just really helps sometimes to have somebody near you. My mom and dad have been a a beautiful example of being present with people. And they have taught me a lot. But whenever there was a funeral, whenever there was uh, someone grieving, they would regularly, I know this, you might not even know what this is, but they would actually pick up the phone and call somebody. Like actually talk to them. Like talking. Not text, like they talked to them. And then many times they would get in their car and they would go to them and be with them. My uh, uncle, my dad's twin brother, uh, Uncle Harry, uh, he passed away last year around this time. Well, his wife, uh, my Aunt Barbara, passed away uh, just recently over the past month. And so my mom and dad, they decided to go. As they were trying to go, my dad was sick and nothing was going to deter him from going. And so even though he would have to sit in the balcony and be further away, he was going to be present to remind them that he cared and that he loved them. I'm able to tell this story because they're not here today and on their way back from the funeral, and so they're not going to be embarrassed. But I'm encouraged by how important they thought presence was. Something they taught me as a dad was be present. Be with your children. Go to their games. Be around them. Laugh with them. Presence is important. We know how much it means when you've had a hard day and you just want to tell somebody about it, right? How many times have you picked up the phone to talk to a friend or a spouse and you're just like, I just need to tell somebody what's going on. It's because presence matters. It's why many of us have pets. Because we just like something being near, right? We just sometimes even tell all of our problems to our animals. Because we like it when there's nearness. All of this is hardwired in us because God says our greatest need in all the world is that we are with him. But more importantly, that we know he is with us. He's present. This is what our God is for his people. He is present. And so today, as we finish up the book of Exodus and look at the book of Leviticus, 
we're going to see the beautiful invitation of our God to say, I want to be with you. Come and enjoy my presence. Here's the four main ideas that we're going to walk through today. The first one is, we'll see the theme of love. The love of our God saying, I want to share my presence with you. His love to us is sharing his presence. Then we'll also see the theme of sin in today's text. It is the rejecting of his presence. Sin is literally turning away from God and pursuing something else. That's why repentance is a turning and running into his presence. We'll see the theme of sacrifice. And sacrifice is the entrance into his presence. As you read through the text of scripture. And then four, holiness. Holiness is the effect, the result of his presence in your life. So, let's go at it. Got a lot of ground to cover. Hitting the high points, as I said. You're going to miss a lot of stories. But I hope that as the new year turns... And we begin to think about reading the scripture, maybe from beginning to end, that when you dive into the book of Genesis, in January maybe, you would have a fresh zeal, a new perspective and understanding of what you're diving into. And so today, let's look at this first one, love, sharing his presence. Now, if you understand the story so far where we are in the book of Exodus, you have the end of Genesis when the people arrive in Egypt, the people of Israel, Jacob and his family of 70, they all arrive in Egypt and they are there for 400 years. And that spans from the end of Genesis to about Genesis, Exodus 14. And it's in that time when 400 years transpires and the people of Israel have been put into slavery and they have been oppressed and God hears their cries and their groans and he comes and he afflicts the Egyptians and he says, I'm going to deliver you. And through the blood of the Passover, he spares the people of Israel and he walks them through the reed sea, splitting the waters by his amazing power. They go across, the Egyptians pursue. They are judged by the same waters of reflection back to the flood where waters were judgment for some and preservation for others. And so what God does is he preserves his people. Now on the backside of walking through the Reed Sea, God says, I'm going to take them not the shortest route by way of the Philistines because they're going to see the daunting nature of this war people and they're going to run away. So he knows our hearts. He knows what we can handle, and he says, I'm going to take you the long way, even though it's the, not the most efficient, it's the way in which you will cling to me the best. And he takes them the long way, through the Reed Sea, led by a pillar of cloud by day and fire, a pillar of fire by night. And as that is leading them through the wilderness, through the desert, that's the long way, they run into a body of water that is bitter. So you imagine, thirsty, in a desert, and the first bit of water that you get is bitter. He ends up making it sweet by throwing a log in, telling Moses to throw a log in there. But after that, the people continue to complain. 
God begins to bring water out of a rock in the midst of a desert to say, I can provide for you, trust me. They begin to complain about not having food and so he sends manna down from heaven. Each and every day, they could depend on God to provide for them. Forty years did he provide for them by sending down manna. But they were already complaining (laughs) right after going through the splitting of waters. They were already complaining. Now what happens is he brings them to the base of Mount Sinai. Now, if you follow that so far, end of Genesis to Exodus 15 is about a 400 plus year span. The narrative comes to a grinding halt because from Exodus 19 all the way through Leviticus into Numbers chapter 10, we are looking at one year of the life of Israel. And they're all at Mount Sinai. So, as they've traveled through the desert, they come to the base of Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai was where Moses was encountered in the burning bush by our great God. Moses is now back there at Mount Sinai. And as Pastor Travis shared with us, the people were told they were going to be his treasured possession. A kingdom of priests. That meant they were going to be his representatives to the world of his great goodness. If they would obey and follow his covenant. And you know what they said? Sign me up. I'm going to obey. So they gather around the base of the mountain. They were supposed to draw near after the third day. The trumpet blows. They did not draw, draw near out of fear. So Moses has to go up in their place. He goes up on the mountain into the presence of God in fire and cloud. And he's on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Now while he's on the mountain, a lot of stuff happens. But for our purposes today, in Exodus 25 to Exodus 40, what we see is that he gives blueprints for something called the tabernacle. The tabernacle has this purpose. Exodus chapter 25 verse 2. God is on the mountain speaking to Moses and says, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. So this is basically a, a, a giving campaign that he is being encouraged to go down and tell the people, you've got to take up some money. Why? From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. Exodus 25, 8 and 9. And let them make me a sanctuary, a place that I may dwell in their midst. And do it exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. I want you to see what has happened. The suffering people, after they saw the most miraculous deliverance that human eyes might ever see other than the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection, they're found complaining. They're invited to draw near and they stay at a distance in fear. Laws are added because of their transgression and they continue to sin. And yet God says this, His holiness should say, 
I'm done with you. And his love says, I want to be right in the middle of them. He says, I want to be in their midst. I want them to be with me. And so for five chapters, he is just, or six chapters, he is laying out blueprints, detailed blueprints of what it would look like for this tabernacle to be in, this, in the middle of the camp where his presence would be. Now let's understand a little bit about this tabernacle. He is creating a place where heaven and earth meet and it has so many hyperlinks and reflections back to Eden. To the place where heaven and earth have collided, where God's presence is there in fullness. He wants to be with his people. It's like this, as the people from the Bible Project call it, it's like a portal. It's this place where when they showed up in the Holy of Holies, when they were in the tabernacle, they were in the presence of God uniquely. There was this uniqueness. Heaven and earth colliding. And note to self, I do believe that's how the author of Hebrews talks about our gatherings week in and week out. This heavenly portal that it takes spiritual eyes to see where he is here in power leading us and yet it's on earth and we are together. It seems really earthy and mundane and yet it is also the place where his presence dwells uniquely. It's the church. Why did he have meticulous blueprints for this tabernacle? Because he wanted them to reflect back on the gift that he was giving them. He is trying to bring them into his presence. Almost this recreation of this kind of Eden moment. Moses had it on the mountain. Fire and cloud on the mountain. Moses alone was the only one who could be in the presence of God. And yet God says, Moses, tell them, I want to be with them too. And so what we'll see happens is after the tabernacle is built, what comes off of the mountain, down from the mountain, it is the pillar of cloud and fire descending in the Holy of Holies. The presence of God there in and among His people. But before we get there, let's just look at the tabernacle itself. Here's a picture of the tabernacle. And this tabernacle, as it is stated to us, in Exodus 25 and following, there are seven speeches. And in the first of the seven speeches, there are seven items that are mentioned regarding the tabernacle. Why is seven helpful or important at all? Because it is a number of completeness and wholeness that the Hebrew reader would completely understand. It, was, it speaks to design. And if it speaks to design, it speaks to design with a purpose. A purpose of his love. And where does he start? He starts with the innermost place. What is known as the Holy of Holies, he starts with the Ark of the Covenant. Do you know there's only two things described in the Pentateuch that are rectangular boxes? Do you know what they are? One, Noah's Ark. Two, the Ark of the Covenant. The only two things described this way. Why? Because they were the unique place of the presence of God that saved the people from judgment. And this Ark of the Covenant 
It's the place where people were to know his presence was with them to take refuge and deliver them from sin and death. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was a lid. You might have heard it called a mercy seat. Literally in the text it's called Kippur, which is the word for atonement. It's like an atonement lid. We'll even find out what in the world atonement means. Atonement just means covering. But it was the place on top of this concentrated presence of God where atonement was made for the sins of the people. That's the first one. The second one is the altar of incense right outside the Holy of Holies. That altar of incense was the place that was supposed to continually burn, never go out. And it was to reflect and represent the prayers of God's people rising up before our God. These things are so important because when you read the book, when you read the New Testament and you get to the book of Revelation, there are so many echoes and connections all back to this very moment. Number three is the table, a golden table for the bread of, do you know what it's called? The bread of the presence. Because this was this inner sanctum that was supposed to remind them of the presence of God. Do you know how many loaves were on the bread of the presence? Twelve loaves to represent the twelve tribes of Israel. And across from that was the fourth one. It was called the menorah. And it was this lampstand that had, guess what, seven lamps on it that were to continually burn and that light was to shine on the bread to represent God's shining presence on his 12 tribes. That he was with his people. And then as you go outside of that second area into this outer courtyard there was a water basin. This basin was not only for washing to reflect purification, but it was also like passing through the waters of judgment. What should be waters of judgment were going to be waters to protect them from judgment. And then outside was the altar. The altar was where all of these sacrifices were made day in and day out. It was near the door, as we have talked about with the Passover. And the offerings were offered at so many regular times, but the burnt offerings specifically, the grain offering, were offered morning and evening perpetually. And then the seventh was the tent itself, the curtains, all the way around and the tent. Seven items reflecting this complete design that God says, I want you to know I want to be with you. Now, when they walked through each individual area, the doors of those areas had cherubim on them. The cherubim were angels, but they were a combination of animal and angel, and they were what guarded the area of Eden. When Adam and Eve were kicked out, it was the cherubim that guarded people so they could not go back into Eden. So what they were supposed to see as they traipsed through one door and into another door, they were to know they were getting closer and closer to the presence of God. Why so much detail? Because God is working with a paradox, a seeming paradox. It might be more called an oxymoron, that God is holy and yet God is intimate and near. Those things can't go together. It's like oil and water. It doesn't mix. And yet it does. This is 
what our God wants to communicate. He loves us. He wants to be with us. He's already showed him the importance of his presence. He can make bitter water sweet. He can take a rock and shoot water out of it. He can provide them food every single day for 40 years is what we'll see. But he provided it for them in that moment. He showed them his guiding presence with pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. He showed them what it means for him to be with them. So they should be terrified if he's not with them. But that's what they deserve. Why? Because they are filled with sin and rebellion. Just as we are. And when you look at the end of Exodus, there's something that's there in the structure. Exodus 25 to 31 are the blueprints for the tabernacle. Exodus 35 to the end are them actually building the tabernacle and sutured right between it is a story. A story that is representative of just like Adam and Eve sinned against God and fell, this is the corporate Israel's falling. It's called the golden calf. Exodus 32 to 34. And what we see is sin is rejecting God's presence. If you look at Exodus 32 verse 1, we see this. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. So you tell me what you would do. Moses is on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. You had no idea of this timeline before he went up, right? So he's going to lead us. He has led us. Now he goes up into the presence of God and he's there 40 days and 40 nights. You're like looking at your watch, so to speak. Like, is he going to come back? When you see fire on the mountain and he goes into the fire, you're pretty much like, this dude's toast. Like, if he's not coming back soon, like, he, it's over. So we've got to figure out our own plan. This is the golden calf. Exodus 32.1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, come on Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. They still had a lot of Egypt residue on them. Multiple gods. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so they ended up taking all, Aaron led them to take all of their earrings and jewels and they melted them down and created this golden calf and they worshipped it. They worshipped this golden calf. Even through pagan orgies, they worship this golden calf. I mean, the degradation of their heart. This is the moment of the fall of Israel as a people. And so what happened? What happened is, Moses is up on the mountain. And God says, Moses, you're going to need to go down. The people have betrayed me. And this is the famous moment when Moses comes down the mountain and he sees what has happened and he breaks, throws down the two tablets that had ten words on them each, this covenant tablets. He breaks them and then he, I don't know how this happened, 
but he grinds this calf into dust, throws it in the water, and tells them to drink it. So then they're tossing down this calf that they have created, and then Moses says this, Who of you out here is going to follow Yahweh? The God who has delivered us, who is going to follow him? And the Levites come over and they said, we will follow. And upon the declaration of God, Moses said, all of those who will not follow, who are idolaters, today they will die. And over 3,000 people died that day. Because they had broken in just a few days. The very covenant, they said, yes, we're going to do this. Have no other gods before me. Make no graven images. They just did it. They said, they signed on the line, and then they just broke it. And so, what Moses ends up saying, is he says, I'm going to go back up the mountain to be in the presence of God. Just so that you know, Moses goes up and down the mountain seven times. There's a design here. And as he goes back up the mountain, he says, I'm just going to go back up so that we can see if we can have repaired for us this relationship with God. And that is when we run into the text that I read at the very beginning of the sermon. When Moses says, are you going to go with us or not? And God has basically said, I'm not going to go with you. I'm going to send a messenger. You're going to go on your own. And he's like, if you don't go with us, I don't want to go. The only thing that makes us special is your name. Church, that's us. The only thing that makes us special is the love of God for us in Jesus Christ. It makes us beautiful and loved and loving Moses was like, the only thing that makes the people of Israel special is your presence. If you don't go, we're toast. We don't want to do this. And God says, I'm going to go with you. And then Moses is like, up in the ante. When God says, I'm going to go with you, Moses is like, can I have just a little more? Show me your glory. And he does. Nobody ever had seen God's presence like Moses had seen God's presence. So then, God says, I will be with the people. Build the tabernacle. They build the tabernacle at the end of Exodus. And now we get to the end of Exodus. And these are the words we read. Now keep in mind. Moses has been more, quote, in the presence of God than anybody else. And then we read these words. Exodus 40. 34 to 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. So you follow me now. They followed the blueprints to perfection. The tabernacle is there. This tent of meeting. That's the tabernacle. And it says, and the glory of God filled the tabernacle. But look at these next words. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Why? Why not? Because when Moses was up there, he was in the presence of God, in the fire and cloud. When he came down, he was the representative of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel had fallen. Here is the question for the entire book of Leviticus. How will the people who are so sinful 
and so unholy, how will they get into the presence of God? If Moses can't get in as the representative of God's people, how in the world will anybody be in the presence of God? Do you see the problem? They need the presence of God. They're unholy, unable to enter the presence of God. How will they get in? The entire book of Leviticus is to answer that question. They will get in through sacrifice. But before we go there, before it becomes just a story, it's our story. The golden calf is our story. It's our story because although we might not have Buddhist or Hindu tendencies where we have physical idols that we worship on a regular basis, the Bible says we have idols of our heart that we give ourselves to. We too We too have run away from the presence of God. We have made the people we love and the things we touch more important than God himself. You and I, we do it almost daily. From how we talk to how we live to how we think about life, we fear, we get anxious, we get angry. We glut ourselves on things. We numb ourselves with things. This is our life collectively. There should be a sense of, oh God, what do we do? Just like the book of Leviticus will teach us, we can't do it. Someone has to die in our place in order that we might have life. And friends, one has. You need to know, sin soils our hearts. It calcifies our hearts. Each moment of hatred or bitterness or complaining or talking bad about someone else, we think we're hurting the other person when instead we are hurting ourselves moment by moment. That's why the author of Hebrews says, encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that you aren't hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It seems so natural and so normal to let ugly things come out, but it is actually hurting ourselves. This is a small picture of all of our sin. We are hurting ourselves. It's self-inflicted wounds. Even when we're trying to hurt other people. When we think we are escaping. We're only hurting ourselves. What is the answer to this crisis? Friends, it is the presence of God. The devil wants you to run and hide like Adam and Eve. But the invitation of this moment, of this story, is no run into my presence because Jesus has made it safe. He stood in your place. He bore the sins that you and I deserve. And he says you are forgiven if you trust in me. Dear friends, some of you, you have messy lives. You have messy pasts. And this story right here is to say, your mess is never greater than his love. Never. Trust him. Trust him. His sacrifice is enough. And so, 
what we do is we run into the book of Leviticus. Because we've got to have an answer to our rejection of his presence. And the answer is sacrifice. Sacrifice is the entrance into his presence. Look at Leviticus chapter 1 verses 1 to 2. It says, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent. Not in the tent, from the tent. So Moses on the outside, God's on the inside speaking to him from the tent. This is a literary suture from Exodus to Leviticus to say Moses isn't able to go in. God now has to speak to Moses from the tent because Moses is not able to go into the tent. How will he be able to be in the presence of God? Like I said, how is God going to reconcile his holiness and the goodness of his presence with sinful people who have failed the covenant? The only way to enter into life in his presence is through death. And so, Leviticus 1 says, To Moses, from the tent, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. Now, this word offering, do you know what this word is? This word offering is a noun form for coming near. It's literally, if you literally translate it, the word offering is the coming near thing. It's the thing that helps you come near. So embedded in what this, these list of offerings are about to be, the burnt offering, the grain offering, all these five different offerings, every one of them have embedded in their title, this is to help you get near to me. Now, let's look at the book of Leviticus as a whole. The book of Leviticus as a whole, I got this from the Bible Project, the book of Leviticus as a whole is kind of like, the illustration they use is like a Wendy's double. Okay? It's got a bun on the top and the bottom. It's got two meat patties. And it's got the cheese in the middle. Okay? Now, we need an extra layer somehow, so maybe you put some lettuce on the top and the bottom. I don't know, but stay with me. The Wendy's double. The book of Leviticus is arranged this way with symmetry for a reason. Here's the reason. The Pentateuch is how many books? I gave you the answer. Look at my hand. Five. Yep. Okay. So, Genesis and Deuteronomy are the bookends. And there are literary connections that say they are the bookends. Which means you got three books that are in the middle. Okay? So you have Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. What's the book in the middle of that? Leviticus. That's this book right here. Now, in the middle of the middle of the middle is something extremely important. And so this has been arranged with a design so that the focus would be right there at 16 and 17 on the day of atonement. This was the day of sacrifice when the sins of the priests, when the sins of the people, when the sins of anybody, once a year, everything was paid for on this day of atonement. This was the only day they could walk into the Holy of Holies. And forgiveness would be offered for everyone. But before we get there, I want you to see the parallelism. 
Ritual 1 and Ritual 2. The first ritual, the first seven chapters, are the five offerings that the people of Israel were to offer. The last little bit are the seven festivals that the people of Israel were to remember. After that, it goes to the priests. It's the life of the priests, and then it's the qualifications of the priests in 21 and 22. And then at the end, you have these purity laws, which honestly is some of the most bizarre reading in all of the Bible. But it's the purity laws on either end of the Day of Atonement. And they all lead towards this middle part that focuses on their need for forgiveness. So I want to start up here with the rituals as we look at the book of Leviticus. And it's here that we will begin to learn that sacrifice is the entrance into his presence. Now, there were five different offerings. You have the burnt offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, the grain offering, and the fellowship offering. The first three were offerings that say, I'm sorry. I have sinned. The last two are thanksgiving offerings that say, thank you God for all you've given me. Now, just so you know, as we read through this, you probably did not feel any pressure at all to take away from this sermon, I need to go home and build a tabernacle. You probably didn't think that's my takeaway. I probably need to get tents, and I need a menorah, and I need a golden table. with show. You probably didn't even think that, and guess what? You shouldn't. Because this law is not for you, as Pastor Travis told us, it is for the people of Israel. Similarly, these five offerings are not for us to now go and offer. But every one of them are meant to make us meditate and reflect, how does this impact us? And the detail of the tabernacle is meant to say, our God delights to be with his people. Stop running away from his presence and hunger to run into it. These offerings are meant to build in this sense of regular confession of sin and thanksgiving to God. These are patterns you see throughout the New Testament, but these things are meant to press into our hearts the regularity of confession of sin and a regular diet of, God, thank you for all that you've given us. So, I told you that these offerings match the festivals. I'm not going to have time to go through the festivals in detail, but I just want you to know what they are. The festivals were listed so that the people of Israel would know the, remember the journey that he took them on. The journey of being delivered out of Exodus. The journey of his provision. And so in the Jewish calendar there are actually two new years. I don't know if you knew this. The first new year is marked by Passover. Followed by the week of unleavened bread and the first fruits and the week of Pentecost which is 50 days after those. Then between the weeks of Pentecost and the trumpets is the second new year. That happens on the seventh month. And that's the Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, and the Tabernacles. We'll hear more about that as we dive into Numbers next week. But these festival meanings have an impact on you in this way. They built in routines, because God told them to, to remember the faithfulness of God. To remember the faithfulness of God. This is one why we gather weekly. Because at the foundation of every one of these is the Sabbath principle of rest. 
the weekly rhythm for the people of Israel where they were supposed to remember week in and week out, the Lord is my provider. He loves me. I will rest in him. And so what does this, how is this supposed to hit us as we listen to all of this information? These festivals are meant to stir our hearts to say our corporate gathering is meant to remind us of God's faithfulness. But also what throughout our calendar year also reminds us of the faithfulness of God, the generosity of God, and is an opportunity for us to offer thanksgiving to God. Did you hear the word? Thanksgiving. We have several things that are built in to our lives, right? Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter. You might want to add like Labor Day and more. You know, I don't know how you do all those. As we approach Thanksgiving this week, Let's allow God's faithfulness to shape our feasting and our time with family and friends more than an American tradition. These things were meant to be physical markers in their lives where they were able to express God's faithfulness and His goodness and His love and it was to affect their generosity towards others. As we approach the Christmas season, let's remember it was Jesus who came to us. The presence of God dwelling among us. Our greatest need. He is our greatest gift. And let's allow the holiday to be about thanking God for His generosity to us and express that generosity to others. The festivals and the offerings. The offerings, there were five of them. Each one a unique and beautiful picture of how they were to relate to God. The one I want to highlight is the burnt offering. The literal word does not mean burnt, it means to go up, to ascend. This was the offering that when you put the animal on the altar, nothing was to be spared. It was to be completely consumed. And what happened in the fire was a transformation. Because what is smoke, chemically, it is the thing burning up and ascending upward. Because the fire has transformed it. And this was meant to be a picture of what is used throughout the Old Testament as fire, as the place of purification. And that's why it would say even people pass through the refiner's fire. This was meant to be a reminder. It was done morning and evening. And it was meant to be a reminder of total surrender. And how the presence of God has the transforming effect to change you and I more and more, as we know, into the image of that offering, the image of Jesus. This offering, this burnt offering, is why Jesus says, I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He stood in our place 
This is why Paul says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He is that sacrifice. And what he invites us into is similar to what C.S. Lewis calls the humility of a lover. It's in the book by Gavin Ortland called Humility, and I think this is something that's helpful, what we do with our sin when it comes to the presence of God. He uses this analogy that says, many of us who have been married, there's been a chance or a time when one in the marriage is wrong and had trouble seeing their wrong, and yet finally does. The compare and contrast is striking. When they don't see their wrong, and, and note just to self, everyone who's been married has been married is in this situation at some point in your marriage. So don't just think about your spouse as I'm talking. The situation is this. What was characteristic at one point was defensiveness and fear and hiding and a struggle to say, I have done wrong. What begins to happen when marriage intimacy grows is what C.S. Lewis calls the intimacy of a lover. Rather than defense, the guard is down. Rather than an articulate argumentation, they come in and they're stumbling over their words. And they walk into the presence of their spouse, not knowing whether they will be accepted or not. And they say, stumbling around, I'm sorry. I've done wrong. All the weight of pretense has weighed down. And they're walking in for the weight of freedom to come off. Those of you who are in that space, when all that happens, I pray that the response could be, I love you. Thank you for coming. Defenseless. Thank you for coming in your imperfection because I too am imperfect. You can be imperfect with me because I'm imperfect and yet I know that I have been forgiven by a perfect one. One who has loved me perfectly. One who knows me fully and will not leave me. One who has paid it all as my burnt offering completely dying, taking all of my sin that I might have life. He's been raised from the dead. So I can forgive you. And although your sin is great, His loving presence is greater. Not only do I invite you into that in your marriage, even more than that, we're married to Christ. And you are invited into his presence with all of your mess because he won't be imperfect in his response. He'll say, I've paid it all and I love you. The only way you get the life of Christ is through the death of Christ. Leviticus tells us the only way you get the abundant life of God's presence is through a sacrifice.
So much time needed. What I will tell you as we run through it is that as he describes the priesthood, Jesus is the great high priest. Jesus is the one who went before us into the holies of holies. That's why the veil was ripped from top to bottom because he alone was the only perfect one whose sacrifice stuck. The priest had to offer these sacrifices day in and day out, year in and year out, on the day of atonement. But Jesus' sacrifice stuck. On the day of atonement, there were two goats. I just held up four fingers. There were two goats. A goat that was a sacrifice and a goat that was let go. Once a year, that goat was slaughtered, blood spilled, because blood actually purified, although it seemed messy. Blood was what purified. That sacrifice was offered, and then hands of the priest were laid on that scapegoat, just like the sins, our sins put upon Jesus on the cross, and then that scapegoat was sent out into the wilderness saying that Jesus went into exile for us, he went into death for us, so that we might have forgiveness and might have life. Friends, here's the promise. Hebrews chapter 4 says this, Since then we have a great high priest, who passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet he was blameless, without sin. So let us then, here's the punchline, because Jesus has paid it all, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Dear friends, our God has paid it all so that we now may walk in his ways and be set free, enter into his presence and walk in holiness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And Father, right now as we reflect on the beauty of your word, we see now the only way that this tension could be resolved where you are holy yet you want to dwell in the midst of unholy people and we thank you that you paid it all so that we might be in your presence. Father, I ask that you would remove this sense of just this is mental to Father, right now in this moment we would take our heart and we would run into your presence. Father, I pray that you would protect us from thinking the way to change is just to focus on what we must do. It's, it's the opposite. It's actually running into your presence, abiding with you where fruit is born. And Father, so many of us are focusing in on do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, rather than the recipe of Leviticus is run into my presence and let my presence change you and make you holy. And so right now as we enter into the Lord's Supper, I pray 
that this is a prayer. And that we walk into your presence. And that we realize by being with you, hiding in you, abiding in you, that's how fruit is born. The fruit of patience and love and joy and peace and goodness and self-control, it comes when we're in your presence. And so help us to bring all of us into your presence right now. In a moment of reflection, friends, let's just sit still. And you walk into the presence of God with whatever God has brought in your heart. And like the burnt offering of surrender, offer your life up in full surrender. And watch him cleanse you from the inside out and supply you with all you need to walk in holiness. Let's be still and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together.